Welcome to Stay Reading, a modern take on the book club. I'm Chris Penrose. And I'm Megan Yuri Young. On today's episode, we have Adiemi Agdagbesan and Kate Van Buskirk. As a runner, I'm so excited to have Kate on. She's an accomplished runner herself with a bronze medal from the Commonwealth Games and her own podcast called The Shakeout. And Adiemi is a visual artist and photographer whose work is so dynamic that it's expressed in two different identities. You might know his photography as Sotio, or you may have seen his work as a digital artist as Young Yemi. We have to ask you, the first question is, what kind of reader are you? You want me to field this one? Yeah. Sure. First of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm pumped to be on this side of a microphone for a change. Yay. It's nice to be the interviewee. <laughs> um, and I'm super pumped for our chat. So I would call myself a sporadic reader. Um, my lifestyle is very um, hectic and kind of takes place in a lot of different parts of the city and the world. So um, I'm sort of traveling from my home at King & Strawn out to my office in the Annex up to York University for training and treatment and throughout the city for different um, appointments and then around the world for training, racing and my broadcasting duties. So my reading takes place whenever it can, Mm -hmm. which often means in short, fast bursts on a subway between stops or if I'm really lucky on an airplane. Um, But I really like being able to just pick up in sort of the middle of a book wherever I am and sort of lose myself in that for the short amount of time that I have. Which literally sums up what we why we're having these conversations. Oh, <laughs> Word, uh, yeah, it's also a pleasure to be here. Um, and I, w- I guess I would describe myself uh, as a as a functional reader. Like I, I read a lot for uh, specific purposes. Like uh, I'm trying to get a specific piece of information or a specific idea or um, some inspiration for something that I'm working on. So I'm like I'm picking at a lot of different things. Um, but it's not it's not always like long form sort of reading. It's just like what whatever I need to get into kind of the way we use like uh, the Internet and social media. Like yeah. it's a reflection of like how I read as well. I still remember going through encyclopedias. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. High absolutely. school. I dated myself. <laughs> I'm glad we're all old enough to remember that. <laughs> yeah, Google that if you don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like the print version of Wikipedia. <laughs> It is. A little more official, I guess, in some (laughs) regards. Um, I wanted to open up. We had, you know, the recent passing of who is described as the most influential literary figure of the 20th and the 21st century, short 21st century so far, um, Toni Morrison. And there was an amazing piece in the Globe and Mail written by Dion Brand, who um, is one of the most... Uh, celebrated and just uh, incredibly talented Canadian writers. Um, she wrote uh, one little line within this tribute to Toni Morrison and the Golden Mail that I wanted to share. Again, get your thoughts on both the line and um, Toni Morrison as a writer. She said that um, she had an, or- an enormous impact on language, on ideas, on breaking open historical silences. Miss Morrison did for literature in English what Gabriel Garcia Marquez did for literature in Spanish. She changed the texture of English itself. That's powerful. I'm a big fan of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, so I (laughs) appreciate that reference. Um, 
I'm not, you know, nearly as familiar with Morris's work as I probably should be and would like to be moving mm -hmm. forward. But I think anytime you can have an author have that kind of impact, um, obviously not only on the writer of that piece, but also on sort of a generation um, and actually multiple generations, mm -hmm. it, it shows the lasting power. I think we live in this community, this society right now of immediacy and a lack of permanence. Um, and everything is sort of at our fingertips all the time. And so it's really easy to like let things bypass us. But when you have an ongoing legacy and a permanence of, of a body of work like that, it's really impactful. Mm -hmm. I also think of like, um, she was so unapologetic for moving forward. And we were just talking about the idea of language. And for instance, like you said something about politeness, mm. not meaning your well, how did you word it? Oh well, it was so, from, oh yeah, it was yeah. From so her. the bluest eye. I never read a Toni Morrison book before. I heard um, this song called "Thieves in the Night" by Black Star, and they opened the song with a reference to the book "The Bluest Eye." So I read it and got to like what page page two hundred and five, where the book's all kind of coming together, and I realized that they had pulled this passage for the chorus for that song. Um, so the, the passage says, she, Toni Morrison writes, all of us, all who knew her, and this is hers of the kind of main character of this book, felt so wholesome after we cleaned ourselves on her. We were so beautiful when we stood astride her ugliness. Her simplicity decorated us. Her guilt sanctified us. Her pain made us glow with health. Her awkwardness made us think we had a sense of humor. Her inarticulateness made us believe we were eloquent. Her poverty kept us generous. Even her waking dreams we used to silence our own nightmares. And she led us and thereby deserved our contempt. We honed our egos on her, patted our characters with their frailty, and yawned in the fantasy of our strength. And fantasy it was, for we were not strong, only aggressive. We were not free, merely licensed. We were not compassionate. We were polite, not good, but well-behaved. We courted death in order to call ourselves braves and hid like thieves from life. And the reason why I wanted you to read that passage is I actually, when you were speaking, Kate, I actually just had this like thought how we're now a very polite society that masks so many things. And Toni Morrison was so unapologetic about about bringing awareness to to just whatever was important to her and whatever mm -hmm. she thought our generation or many generations needed to hear. And I think that was one of the her legacies, one of the things that really made people like stop and listen mm -hmm. um, because we're just so politically correct these days, which is obviously we need to be, but absolutely. Yeah. Um, I unfortunately have not read a Toni Morrison book to this mm -hmm. point. It's on my uh, it's on my to read list, but yeah. I, I haven't gotten to it yet. Um, and, but I was super sad to hear of her passing. Um, my partner is a huge Toni Morrison fan. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've watched a lot of her interviews, uh, like by proximity. Right, right. Um, and I, I, I think it's great what what you were mentioning uh, about her her sort of um, eloquence, like she like and her unapologeticness. Like she um, she was able to be like super assertive, like from what I've seen, anyways, mm -hmm. in in a lot of situations where um, people were sort of undermining her value uh, based on the fact that she's black, based on the fact that she's a woman. Um, but she was able to just like... Well, and then she wrote about black characters exactly. in a black world mm -hmm. without the need to 
center it around whiteness. Right. Yeah. Um, but she she was able to like you know always just hold that space uh, and mm. very eloquently but very assertively just kind of like um, you know stake stake her her ground and 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 stake her claim and it's uh, it's empowering you know. What I love too is just how you guys can speak about her impact having not really delved that deeply into her work. And the last time I wrote, read something was, I think, high school, to be honest. But she's always stayed with me. And when she when I learned of her passing, it was just immediately, like, what, like reading all of her quotes, watching her interviews again, and just, like, reminding myself why I need to pick up one of her books. I haven't in so long. Well, it's, it's interesting as well, because I think that when you listen to her, like, say, or you listen to her words and you listen to her speak or you read what she said, um, you you may not know how much you've actually taken in of her influence. Mm-hmm. It's like in hip hop, you listen to like, you may not know Rakim's work or Nas's work really deeply, but there's so like, you can't really listen to anybody mm-hmm. in the music mm-hmm. or, or go very far that isn't influenced by them. And kind of how they change the way they use language and music um, has affected other artists. And so even even if you haven't directly read her work mm-hmm. you certainly have um read people who were deeply influenced and shaped and inspired and and just shown new possibilities by mm-hmm. by how she used language how she used character i'm, and, I'm yeah. a huge fan of that black star album so yeah definitely have to <laughs> put those puzzle pieces yeah in right i'm sure like as i'm reading it could you hear the hook and, yeah yeah absolutely, yeah absolutely. exactly so i was reading it and then I'm listening to it and I'm hearing most Def's voice <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden. And most Def's voice was not in the book with me <laughs> until that moment. Um, but ho- speaking of holding space um, for, especially for representation of like black images and black characters, your work as Young Yummy um, is very much about that. I wondered if you had anything in that stack that's um, really connected to your work as an artist. Um, yeah, actually, um, I guess. The first thing I'll, I'll pull. Oh, I want to spell that there. First thing I'll pull out is um, this magazine is called uh, Natal, um, and I was just reading this uh, interview with a um, a woman named Jen Inkiru, and she's uh, she's basically like an emerging uh, film director. Mm-hmm. Um, she's put together like uh, a number of really powerful short films, also um, has directed a lot of like high profile music videos. Um, she was part of the team that did uh, the Jay-Z and Beyonce video where they took over the Louvre. Oh, oh so, wow. Um, she's, she's, she's connected with some, some really powerful people, but um, yeah, there's a, there's a quote in here that, that really, uh, resonated um about uh yeah about sort of um i guess yeah holding space is like the is the best way to put it so she's she says i'm on a mission to recalibrate black images which are oftentimes centered on cis black males um in order to create something with fullness that is representational and inclusive of all of us images of women images of queer identities um so I thought that was like really, mm-hmm. really dope about um, just being very intentional with that, and uh, I guess expanding. Uh, I, I think a lot of times, if you if what you do represents um, sort of what's considered like a minority voice, it doesn't whether it's like uh, whether it's racial or gender based or you know whatever. Um, I think it's 
it's very often like you get put in a category that's like the most normal version of that minority um and then you and then you have uh it, in popular media and popular culture anyways you have this sort of uh monolithic identity where like everybody that's connected to that um connected to that sort of uh like that identity takes on one singular form i guess mm -hmm. um is the best way of putting it um so i know you know for me as an artist uh as a black artist trying to represent you know different facets of what it, what blackness is about what it, what it represents rather than um you know just going back to the to the fallback stereotypical sort of versions of of uh, what black identity is about would you say that um the words on that page in the magazine was something where it's like poetry like kind of says something you know to be true but haven't put in those words or was it, you know where it's like oh yes that says what I am aiming to do or was it like you read it in like oh I, that is what I want to do like it's it was a confirmation or it's, aspiration or both it's affirmation it's like um mm -hmm. it's just it's always great to find uh voices that align with your own like personal intentions you know so um I, I guess yeah I would I would I would call it an affirmation I think uh, it's put more eloquently in in, <laughs> in here than uh, than how I've expressed it in the past but I think but exactly how you felt it it's it's exactly what I feel so I'm, I'm you what know, I love excited. what I love about this like concept of not falling back on stereotypes or falling back on what's easy is as much as I just said like we might live in a very polite society which is clearly it's just masking a bunch of darker undercurrents um, is that we are becoming more educated and when you become more educated through reading or sharing it it, it it's almost impossible you were you're actively choosing to blind yourself if you fall back on the stereotypes so to immerse yourself and to recognize these artists that are also feeding your own work and you're you're like affirming affirming your own outlook is amazing and to bring to light an emerging artist that's doing Big things is so cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. What do you have here? Yeah, so this is all, <laughs> I'm already so inspired. Um, that was beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I would love to learn more about her. Um, in terms of sort of connecting things back to our preliminary conversation around Morrison, uh, I have been um, reading for the last probably three years the works of Brene Brown, and she has become pretty uh, popular in the space of sort of the, I guess, in the um, kitschiest term, the self-help uh, arena. She is a, um, a researcher and a social worker um, out of the U.S., and she has centered a lot of her research and her focus around shame and concepts of shame and how we process these and how they play out in our society and how we can potentially overcome them. And Megan, when you were talking about how we live in this sort of society of politeness and being afraid to um, step into places that maybe we aren't as familiar with and aren't as comfortable with because either it's unfamiliar to us, which is always scary, or because we don't want to encroach on a space that does not belong to us. And we're, I think sometimes we can live in these, um, these sort of silos of, of, fear around impeding in someone else's space when we don't belong there rather also, than being invited. Also, there's this whole conversation of appropriation now rather than celebration. Yes. And so there's so many things like we want, to, we're just learning, right? And yeah, and I don't well, even know. And, and I think people, a lot of times, instead of wanting to learn those nuances and like go through that process of, um, you know, like 
equity work is ugly. Yeah. It's never it's never gonna be like a simple, pretty thing. Like for those inequities to surface, it it's an ugly process, mm-hmm. right? Why are you willing to sit with that? And so people will rather than say learn those nuances, just try to avoid it altogether. A com- like hundred you know. percent. Um, but you were yeah well it, and it's it's certainly related to this conversation it's less specific to sort of um, that conversation about uh, differentiated spaces from maybe a cultural or a racial perspective but uh, one of the things that has really resonated with me I've become fairly outspoken in terms of my history with my own mental health issues uh, I'm the very lucky daughter of two social workers so I grew up in a very supportive home one of the things that taught me though is that does not preclude you from having really s- severe mental health struggles yourself. And as a high-level athlete, as a leader in my community for a long time, I hid those things from everyone else um, in an attempt to not only sort of self-protect, but also to make others around me more comfortable. Mm. And one of the big things, this book is called The Gifts of Imperfection, and Brene Brown has written quite a bit on this topic, but I really like this book because it's it provides what she calls some guideposts to working through things like shame and fear of not being enough and inadequacy. But it's certainly not, um, there, there's nothing here that is dictatorial. Like you can sort of flip between sections and find things that really resonate with each person. But one of the opening statements that she makes that really sets the tone for the book that compelled me to read it is, owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy, the experiences that make us most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. And I think that's such a powerful statement. Mm -hmm. Um, Brene talks about three main sort of uh, tenants to her work, and those are courage, compassion, and connection. And she states that you can't have any one of those in an authentic way without exploring the depths of the others. Um, and the the one piece that really, really struck me is that she defines courage not as heroism or or bravery in sort of the traditional sense, but the courage to find vulnerable spaces mm-hmm. and lean into them in oh, really yeah. uncomfortable ways. Totally Morrison. That's 100% Morrison. <laughs> Um, so actually, which is interesting, it kind of relates to this, but not really, but I want to bring up, so a book that I brought with me is The Way of the World, and not to completely cut you off, because I think it's kind of interestingly related. So this was a book I read when I was in university, and it's a play by William Congreve, and I, and it's basically by, by the title, The Way of the World, it's kind of like tearing up, and this is written in the 1600s, like, so it's like tearing at the seams of society and personal relationships, but obviously from a very different era. But one of the main themes kind of can be encapsulated by this passage. Why do we daily commit disagreeable and dangerous actions to save that idol reputation? If the familiarities of our loves had produced that consequence of which you were apprehensive, where could you have fixed a father's name with credit, but on a husband? And so... <laughs> This whole idea is so this whole play is um, about love and marriage, but also transactional, um, transactional love. Like uh, there's this whole like undercurrent of blackmail and um, seediness to this play. And as much as you think while you're reading it, it's about love and money. It's actually about reputation. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting to kind of 
link that to this idea of being vulnerable because I think reputation is that mask that we always wear. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know. What are your thoughts on... Um, do you, do you want to re reply to that? I, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on it. And, and again, this is something that Brene really dives into. And I think that one of the lines that struck me when you were um, reading from that passage in, in the book by Morrison was that she really, um, I guess she's referencing the character, the female protagonist in yeah. the story. Yeah. But she is talking about how through the expressions of vulnerability and strength, and I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. In mm -hmm. fact, I Definitely think they're not. necessary to to coexist. But through the character's expression of those things, it created this openness and this possibility for those around her to reciprocate. And this is something that I've thought a lot about when I think about leadership, is that in order for us to... Um, she, Brene talks about compassion as well, and she says we cannot have compassion for others until we have compassion for ourselves, which sound, it, we, we've heard these words so many times. Mm -hmm. But I think when you put them in those contexts of here is someone who is the epitome of strength and joy and beauty and, and imperfection, and those things make up the whole, and here they are providing um, somewhat of a gentle template for how the rest of us could explore that as well. It's, um, it creates a chain effect. I, th I think that particular passage from the blue side is actually um, where, like, what it's the example of why people veer away from vulnerability, mm -hmm. right? It's like that your vulnerabilities, this one character, she her vulnerabilities are on full display, and those around her use those vulnerabilities for everything <laughs> possible mm -hmm. to turn their nightmares into dreams, to turn their own ugliness into beauty, to turn... Um, their own ineptitude into like you know looking like some shining star um, and I think that's part why there is that relationship between strength and vulnerability because mm -hmm. when you really do show the core of like in those flaws and those weaknesses and, and those challenges and, and um, those those struggles you have they as much as it can be freeing and they can also be held against you mm -hmm. you know I think that's the case where where they were but then you see like to, you know to that to which was beautifully said in there it's like which life is harder the mm -hmm. the one where you have your flaws held against you or the one where you continually try to create a story that excludes those flaws what's mm -hmm. interesting too is i've been uh i referenced a book uh, in one of our earlier episodes called The Untethered Soul. And <laughs> I feel like a lot of people have read this book, but that's one of the things too. It's like when you become vulnerable, yes, things can be used against you, but will you A, pay them any mind or will you move away from those toxic mm -hmm. um, people or ideas or places so that you're not put in a position once you're vulnerable to for it to be used against you. And I'll just say quickly here, one of them, one, she devotes a whole chapter to this. It's called Vulnerability with Boundaries. Oh. And I think that her, her point is that Yes, you need to be wary of the fact that these can be exploited. Mm -hmm. And sometimes without malicious intent, right? Mm -hmm. People are drawn to those who are open. And so sometimes that can become too much of an energy suck. And it's like finding the way to create healthy boundaries while still remaining open to possibilities and to your own shortcomings. And then the beauty that can you know, erupt out of those is really key. <laughs> I think that's a great way of putting it. I think uh, like it's it's about finding a balance. I think I, I totally agree with that passage. Like I think vulnerability takes a lot of courage and you know to slide it back to the sort of social media pop cultural sphere um i think um 
showing some vulnerability um, in whatever role you're, you're in, like whether you have a platform or, you know, it's just your daily life, um, your your online persona or whatever, showing some degree of vulnerability is, is one of the uh, is one of the most compassionate things we can offer to the people around us because what it does is it allows other people to sort of show some of that vulnerability to themselves. If mm. everyone is going to your to your comment about reputation, if everyone is like trying to craft these like pristine uh, sort of rep- uh, reputations or or this facade that we we now. Um, can create in the in this like in uh, in this virtual world that mm-hmm. we're getting further and further into, um, it kind of the result is it forces everyone to do that. It forces you know like if my Instagram is only vacation shots, then yeah. I, then everyone in my social sh- circle starts feeling like wow, like if I only if I don't only post vacation shots as well, <laughs> yeah, then, yeah. you know I'm not uh, I'm not on that level. So I think like just showing some vulnerability, talking about our struggles and uh, you know our barriers and what what holds us back, um, in in an honest way, um, I think just gives other people to to do like space to do the same things. Mm-hmm. That's why I love this play as well, the way of the world because a it's yes the language is dated but the concepts still exist to this day. So it's mm-hmm. almost like we are human, we have our our as a collective species our human um issues that we will forever kind of like be will forever be our legacy in our in our future, but as we move forward and as we learn and as we have these platforms that allow us to digest more and share more and mm-hmm. and be vulnerable, we are evolving. And so it's really fascinating. And that's why I, rem- I remember like spying this book yesterday being like, yeah, I have to bring this in because it's, and just the title, The Way of the World, you know what I mean? Written in the 1600s. It's just, yeah. So it's like, it's less about the technology than we think sometimes. Yeah. It's when you look at it on that level of like, this curation of an image. Um, and yeah, so that's done through Instagram or whatever right now. But mm-hmm. as you see, it, it was done through like marriage and the type of job and, and how you presented yourself at a party, which was literally like you're going there to, to be seen in a certain light. For all the listeners out there, the environment we are recording in doesn't seem to be that important because you can't see the space. But to get beautiful sound, whether it's for a podcast, recording music, or even for film, TV, and advertisements, the space you're in and how it runs matters. That's why we record Stay Reading out of Post Office Sound in Liberty Village. From the raw audio to creating a sound bed and all of the magic that happens in post, the difference can not only be heard, it can be felt. So to all the creatives out there, if you need great audio, think Post Office Sound. You know what? I'll, I'll, I'm gonna go. I, I will go in a different direction here. Yes. I'm gonna um, take it to sort of current current affairs right mm-hmm. now. Um, I just got through reading uh, uh, this two two part series by Octavia Butler, um, the Parable of the Sower and the Parable of the Talents. Um, so I'm gonna. I brought uh, the sower, but I'm gonna read a quote from Parable of the Talents. I don't awesome. have the hard copy here with awesome, me, but. Awesome. Uh, yeah, and, and Chris too, might have yeah, actually alluded love, to the fact that you I love Octavia brain. Butler. Yeah. Um, I think if, if people haven't explored her work, just what she's done 
as a black woman in science fiction and mm-hmm. you just even if you just see her interviews when discussing what that was um what blazing that trail was but the level that she um wrote in that space i think a lot mm-hmm. of times people don't treat science fiction as literature it's kind of it's seen as like you know just like fantasy and science fiction right. as like or romance novels as this like subcategory of like yeah. entertainment rather than literature um which is not a fair brush to sweep but i think what octavia butler did in science fiction just is like some of the greatest literature um, produced. Wait, before you say anything, I have mm-hmm. to ask, is this a library book? It is, yeah. Absolutely. Oh my god, I love it. Because it has, see, you guys know like the, plastic. the, the plastic covering <laughs> the smell, they always of, have a, smell. of a yeah. library book and I'm like, this just brought me so much joy. <laughs> I wish you guys were in the room with us right now. <laughs> Can I tell you, I just got my library card uh, back after years really? uh, of not having one. I just did the same. Congratulations. <laughs> I just got <laughs> library cards for my children two weeks ago. Oh. <laughs> we, have, we have like literally the best public library system in the world in yeah Toronto. so if you, you if you're to. living here you should take advantage of it totally. so let's get into this okay, let me let me get into this um yeah this uh quick background um parable of the talents is the second book of the series published in 1998 um so just like the the amazing accuracy of sort of her forecast like she's now passed away but her her forecasting like it's it's just incredible um one of the things i love about her her writing is that it's uh she's obviously a black author but she it's not it's not really about race directly like she writes all characters there's you know there's black characters and white characters and hispanic characters um in these in these novels and they're all treated with equal validity um they're all integral parts of the story um but she just she just does it in this super honest and insightful way. So this quote uh, comes from the second book in the series, and it's basically to give it a little context. It's um, it's about the year twenty thirty. Let's say uh, I, not exactly not that far anymore. Not that far in into 90, the future. Ninety eight right? when that yeah. came out, it was like that was far. But. So this is taking place twenty thirty. Um, the United States has basically fallen to ruin and uh a new a new political candidate has uh emerged to sort of galvanize the country um and is running for president um by the name the the name is Jarrett so um she's basically describing this whole process she said um well first of all speaking of the wars that the country was in uh she says these were stupid affairs waste of life and treasure all too often they were fought ostensibly to defend against vicious foreign enemies um, all too often they were actually fought because inadequate leaders did not know what else to do. Such leaders knew that they could depend on fear, suspicion, hatred, need, and greed to arouse patriotic support for war. Jarrett, who's the presidential candidate, condemns the condemns the burnings. Um, you speak, there's like, which burnings become mm. a thing again. Um, so Jarrett condemns the burnings but does so in such a mild language that his people are free to hear what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. As for the beatings, the tirings, the featherings, and the destruction of the heathen houses of devil worship, he has a simple air answer. Join us. Our doors are open to every nationality, every race. Leave your sinful past be- behind and become one of us. Help us to make America great again. <sighs> Yeah. She wrote that in 1998. Yeah. Wow. You know? oh my God. 
like I, I like when I read that I was just like blown away like mm-hmm. also I sorry before we that's get into that the, for the first book right this is the first one the, that's the first one so, yeah, that's um, even just within the cover so I've never read this book and now I'm like I'm already took a photo of the cover <laughs> and I'm gonna get it uh, Parable of the Sour Sower is, Sower. Sower yeah. is um, the but butlerian odyssey of one woman who is twice as feeling in a world that has become doubly dehumanized Mm. that sentence is Mm. powerful so that's i like i don't profit yeah she she totally like the the way she describes it it's like uh these books the first one is basically like a background that sets up all the characters and then the second book is kind of like the payoff where everything uh everything gets resolved um but just the way she describes uh you know contemporary american society it's it's very much like if you're a fan of the series uh black mirror Mm -hmm. it's it's very much sort of like that like 15 minutes into the future kind of thing handmaid's there you go yeah Yeah, and, and what's jumping out of my mind is uh margaret atwood um talked about how she approaches writing science fiction um, and she said she would never include anything, any, she won't ever include a technology that doesn't currently exist mm-hmm. or a scenario that hasn't happened in the past. Mm-hmm. And in that way, um, her, her, the material can always be relevant. Yeah. Um, and that's why, you know, people wa- are watching now The Handmaid's mm-hmm. Tale. It's, you brought the graphic I know novel. I the graphic it's novel. in the, there's the uh, audio book and all these different forms of it. But people keep saying, you know, with, the work of Margaret Atwood, the work of Octavia Butler, you know, I think had similar approaches. Like, them? how is it so accurate? How mm-hmm. is it so spot on? And I think that's that's a really interesting thing when you dive into their work is mm-hmm. how they've done that. In Fahrenheit 451, who is the Radbury? Radbury. Hey, Radbury. Yeah, so I remember reading that um, just on my own. And I, I always had these preconceived notions of books that were on reading lists, like school reading lists. I'm like, oh my God, this would be so boring. <laughs> I couldn't put it down. And and I remember not being able to put it down because I was, I was thinking to myself, wow, this is what we're living right now. If you guys haven't read the book, um, it's, it's about uh, censorship. It's about mm. control. And it's about dumbing the populace with uh, pop culture and virtual reality and and trying to just numb everyone to what's actually going on in the world and I think again kind of coming back to the way the way of the world play is just showing once again how we um, w- the reason why these books can be written and and seem so accurate once we're living it is because there are some things that we humans are just it's like it's like in our blood it's like mm-hmm. we just cyclically go history through these repeats history repeats itself and I honestly there's a point where yes we can change but maybe that's just our species <laughs> right well I also think like I'm really into fiction over nonfiction in a lot of cases mm-hmm. because I find that more I find more reality in fiction <laughs> than in nonfiction and I think like you know you look at a book like Parable of the Sower and the follow-up Parable of the Talents, and it's in that category of science fiction, which is like fiction is not real, and then science fiction is not real, not real, like <laughs> to the exponent. But um, yet you find in 98 someone, you know, writing um, a pretty vivid description of exactly what's happened. Like I, um, at first I didn't know I was going to say be as on the head with the make america great but 
um, just, uh, you know, when you look at what happened in um, when there was the marches around the statues by white supremacists, mm-hmm. um, they're trying to keep the statue up. And then there was all this conflict with uh, and then someone ends up getting, you know, killed. Right. Oh, and hit by a car and, and just all this. And and it was a, a, such a passive um, condemnation right. that to that the way it said it, that allowed anyone to hear what they wanted to hear. Right. Mm-hmm. You could hear a condemnation or you could hear a cosign like <laughs> in the same sentence that, yeah, it, you absolutely. know, and so it's, it's crazy how science fiction um can be a source of such accurate social critique. Just to riff off of what you're saying about fiction and nonfiction, how fiction can actually be more realistic than not. Sometimes, I don't I don't know if this is a bit of a stretch, but I read this, um, basically the opening passage of this, I don't know, art book, magazine, that I bought solely because it, it has a felt cover, so, yeah, and it says feelings. feelings yeah. <laughs> and this is when I just started the SAG Collective, and I was just like, anything with feelings in it. Um, but this is written by Alexander Thoreau. An artist has uh, an artist has to create something original, imitate, trace a shadow, search for truth, describe his surroundings, know herself, exist in what he makes, draw the line somewhere, pick up where nature ends, be a source of beauty, express the sublime, reflect conditions, create new forms, be a genius, suffer like a saint, doubt, create magic, leave behind false images, break the rules, conceive with fire, execute with coolness, throw down the gauntlet, be an architect of change, Express her personal spirit. Follow a vision. Create a better society. Be individual. Make others see. Act with courage. Introduce new signs. I can read. It's like quite a long list. And it kind of goes down to touch an absence. Have more ideas than time. Seek his way out of a clearing. Be inspired. Perform. Serve a public. Need nothing. Create a reality. Experiment. Connect where words fail. Wash away with the dust. Voice dissent. Make associations. Express the essential. Create her own moment, reclaim lost symbols, capture the times, visualize the future. As viewers, all we have to do is look. And I just love this idea that as an artist, you can create something that maybe is real, maybe is not real. And it just, it just, and then as a viewer, you just digest and you're like, yeah, I see it. I I understand. And I kind of am living this or whatever your connection with that is. Yeah. Adami, am I saying that? Yeah, correctly? yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I was curious um, when you were reading that passage. I, it was um, it was thought provoking to say the least. But is there anything other than it being sort of this uh, this prequel to what we've now discovered in our modern world? Is there anything informative in there for you that would give you hope around how we might navigate where we are now? I mean, mm-hmm. she again was so prophetic in that passage and. And I don't even know if that was her intent. I mean, it's too bad that we can't have a conversation with her about that now. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because it would be so, and this is always the case, it would be so curious to get the author's take on how their work has become so uh, immediately relevant to what's happening. But was there anything else in there other than it just being so indicative of where we are that was informative or hopeful or, um, like, yeah, inspired you in, in a different way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, like, the main character, uh, you touched on it sort of inside the book jacket, uh, she has this um, disability, basically, uh, that uh, makes her experience anybody's uh, pain or pleasure uh, in that's around that she can see that's around her. So mm-hmm. if... The person next to her gets shot, then she feels oh. like she got shot, and like she'll have a physical mm-hmm. reaction to it. Um, 
and that's a huge vulnerability, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gets used against her a lot, but it's also like the source of uh, it, later on in the storyline, it becomes like the source of her, I guess, insight uh, in mm-hmm. into humanity, and then she becomes like this uh, this sort of religious figure that sort of you know galvanize like creates this whole movement um, towards the end of the book that uh, you know that sort of helps bring people out of you know this sort of dark ages that that they're in so um so I she's think like a unifier it's totally a unifier and it's because of her her vulnerability wow. <laughs> so um well, and what i hear in that too is that um where you're seeing this whole like series of um, people that have taken power through fear and division mm-hmm. and division is like you're like this they're like that i can protect you from them you right. know mm-hmm. and that empathy that she right. has allows her to like feel and experience in such an extreme way, but that um, what others are experiencing, but how I think to that point of like the earlier great question of like what is instructive to us mm-hmm. in navigating this type of mm-hmm. time that we're in is that uh, we can't really be divided when we have that, that real empathy for each other. And I was in a conversation yesterday about like, you know, politics and, you know, you, you look at even in the Canadian situation of like, oh, you, you voted for this person, what? Mm-hmm. Like, or you mm-hmm. you look at some of the people that we have in power in the country and you're like, why would someone put that person into power? You know, but, and it's easy to write that person off mm-hmm. who who's, you know, say got behind someone who's like cutting social supports and all that kind of thing. But if you have empathy for that person maybe it's understanding why like why did you why did that person resonate with you and let's not let that divide us Mm -hmm. you know which is hard it's really hard it's funny i didn't think i would be referencing this book so much because i brought (laughs) others but i I know know, we don't have a lot of time but um one of the things that uh brown talks about in her research is that when we feel threatened or when we are scared because we don't want to be vulnerable one of our gut reactions is to become certain about everything so it's kind of ironic that in our moments of the most amount of turmoil or uncertainty we self-protect by appearing to be the authoritative Mm. voice Mm. on whatever it may be and i think we're seeing that particularly in u.s but certainly in global politics in general right now is that yeah and everyone's looking to um a right versus wrong this sort of um like black black and white white approach to the way that we can view our world because that makes it neat and easy in these moments of really uh intense fear and concern Mm. and uh distrust that we have in the world and so again it all comes back to compassion because the the latin root of the word compassion is actually to suffer with Mm. and so i just found it again so instructive about how or or at least explanatory about how um things are happening in the world as they are right now these these mass shootings in the u.s that are just purely driven by and i i I hate is an easy word to throw out but i think it's fear and distrust and um lack of lack of connection and so we're all suffering that is part of the human experience is to suffer Mm -hmm. and so to suffer with um, is is not just to fall into the depths of despair, but to be able to share in that human experience mm. and find those moments of commonality where we don't immediately see them because they're not easy to see. I have to ask you yeah. about this book. And Dante. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the skin of a lion. Why did you bring this? So I brought um, 
I predominantly read nonfiction. And again, part of that, your introduction was really struck me because um, I'm, I'm usually looking for more of a utilitarian uh, source in my reading. I have been a coach for a long time. I'm now in media myself and I'm a runner. So I'm often looking to expand my own knowledge of running, which is why so much of this is running based. But when I'm traveling and especially when I'm traveling internationally, I really like reading Canadian fiction, mm-hmm. um, particularly historical fiction, because I think that it provides like a, a real draw to home for me. But it also, like you said, can be very indicative of the world that we're living in now. So I read Michael and Dante's In the Skin of a Lion in high school. And Megan, to your point, I, I really enjoyed English in high school, but there were certain readings where I was like, oh, I hate that we just have to read this thing. This was the opposite of this. I couldn't put it down. And and Dante uh, is a prolific Canadian writer who has uh, written extensively um, in the genre, historical genre fiction uh, um, realm, rather. But he... Um, he talks a lot about the migrant experience in this book, mm. and it's it goes back to the early 1900s in Toronto. I read it right before I moved to Toronto. I was living in Brampton at the time, and then I was traveling internationally, and then I moved back to the city. And it gave me such a different perspective on the city that we live in and what went into building this thing mm. that we now call this this multicultural mosaic um, and that's really beautiful, but I think a lot of times we aren't necessarily privy to the struggles of the ha- of the basis of that multiculturalism mm. that was steeped in fear and discrimination and hatred and um, well, there's a big uh, Sri Lankan community in Brampton too. Right? There is so yes. I'm half Sri Lankan. Okay. I'm not Tamil though, but I'm half Sri Lankan, and I have I finally read read one of Michael's books. Um, but it's his newest one. I can't for the. I'm trying to remember the title. But I've. I don't know why I haven't. And my family. It's always been in our shelves. But I just. Mm-hmm. And I tried flipping through. I've tried like reading, one before. But like as you asked earlier, like what's kind of like a takeaway from this aside yeah. from is it is it mainly kind of like opening your eyes to Canadian diversity? I think it is, but in in um, subtle ways. So. There, to me, there are sort of two main storylines going throughout this book. One is the sort of physical building of the infrastructure that we now call Toronto. So the the, the Prince Edward Viaduct or the Blue Bloor Street Viaduct mm-hmm. that goes over the, the Don Valley. Imagine the sort of well, my engineering and, architect- book, right? yeah. and architectural feat that went into that in you know the twenties and thirties when we obviously you know that was a hundred years ago. We don't have nearly the um, advances in technology and, and knowledge that we have now. But the number of sort of lives that were considered expendable. Mm. And we see this in any major sort of um, uh, colonizing or um, modernizing element in history, whether it be war or whether it be the founding of a new land, which inherently means genocide of a native population, or whether it means building an infrastructure for a great metropolis on the backs of those who um, were either desperate or didn't have a choice or weren't able to enjoy the spoils of what they were then creating. Mm -hmm. But then the secondary storyline is this really soft, subtle underlay of like, here are the interpersonal relationships between the characters, and they're the same as everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes the unifying factor in this book for me is that it's not just here's this group of migrants that struggled and here's where their struggle played out. That's an important narrative. But it's also here's how they loved each other. Here's Mm -hmm. how they navigated keeping a house over, you know, a roof over their over their um, heads. Here's how they navigated raising their children. Here's how they navigated their love relationships and um, where in the city they were going to live. And all of these really just normal things that we all go through all the time. And, yeah, it, it, it was um, a very impactful book for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. There was, um, 
Damien, we've had a conversation about that Bluer Bridge before. Um, I've I've always looked at it as like, it it should be as iconic as the CN Tower in terms of understanding Toronto, you know, whether it's the fact that like it was, there was people living on one side of it, but there was nobody living on the other side Mm -hmm. when they built it. They built it with the capacity for a subway 30 years before Toronto had a subway. Wow. Yeah, the forethought was incredible. So it's like, you think about it now, we can't even get a subway built that's been <laughs> planned for 30 years. They were like, no, because I know the version of the bridge that holds the subway versus the version of the bridge that doesn't hold the subway, it's a big yeah. price mm-hmm. difference, yeah. right? Like, um, And then just the way that, like, you know, Toronto has so many parks, valleys, rivers, mm-hmm. streams, and... Um, the fact that like you've had to build the city mm-hmm. through them and around them, um, you, you know, I think there was there's more green space in Scarborough, for example, than any other part of the GTA. Which like a lot mm-hmm. of people when they hear the word Scarborough or the name Scarborough, they don't think of Rouge green Valley. space. Yeah, yeah but there's all kinds of valleys. Yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. one of them, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and I know you you photographed it before. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. What's your um, Hearing that background on the on the book and kind of the connection between the have sacrifice the of I have not yeah, migrant workers, but have to having yeah, that love absolutely. for the for that. <laughs> absolutely, thank you. No um, it's a gift. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> <Yours>. <laughs> <laughs> I have two. <laughs> that one's yours. Now. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I I mean like I think um, like I I was always uh, you know sort of uh, awed by the the foresight that went into to building it but i think like what what you're talking about the the backstory of um you know how how it was built and who was used to build it mm-hmm. i think is is an equally important part of that story that um mm-hmm. that also needs attention you know um and it's, it's the unfortunate thing like so often like these huge infrastructure projects you know are you know are built on the backs of the the most vulnerable or the 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 people that um that you know in many ways don't have a choice like everyone's mm-hmm. got a choice but uh you know like it's it's a different kind of choice you mm-hmm. know so um and i you know i think about that in this city all the time even like in the present moment uh when you when you look at the commonalities be- between uh who's driving your uber and who's you know in the restaurant cooking your food and all these different things is like there's certain pockets of society where you see a lot of one type of people and not a lot of another type mm-hmm. of people you know um mm-hmm. so i think that's that's always something to that i think we should be aware of and and you know have well, and it's connected for, to yeah. infrastructure yeah. yeah like you cannot um separate yeah. like who you see you know at the art gallery opening night you know thousand dollar ticket and who you see driving your Uber from the physical infrastructure yes. of mm-hmm. housing, of bridges, of mm-hmm. um, how resources are allocated, over, not just over one budget cycle, but over generations. Over generations, absolutely. That's you such know? a great way. I also that. just love the way you say, like, everyone has a choice, but some people, some people, like, that choice is different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And being aware of that, and that's where compassion comes into play. That's where empathy comes to play and suffering with, because... Um, so many of us are, we are all privileged, right? To Absolutely. a certain extent being here in Canada, Absolutely. but then we, for, we do forget. Um, and that's why these conversations are so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should go to a closing thought for everyone. 
um, on the conversation, whether you want to just based off of something that was said, shared, or if there's one nugget in what you brought in with you. Like for me, it was, I like that, the different set of choices, like how every choice can be different, even if you do have a choice, that level, that for me is what I'll walk away with. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think uh, I think the sort of the underlying theme of today's conversation was just that that vulner like to to honor your vulnerability mm-hmm. and you know to have uh, to try to have compassion for people around you. So uh, you know, thank you for for bringing <laughs> that bringing that to the table. I think yeah. that I think that's so important. And if uh, if people can, you know, just give a little bit of thought, save a little bit of space up here <laughs> for that. You know, that that would be amazing. So. Uh, That's a beautiful statement. I completely agree. And I think that what has given me pause from this conversation is not just celebrating um, our differences when they're in something like a piece of art or, you know, in a fairly polished version, but then being able to, like, do the hard work of trying to create those bridges. Mm -hmm. Bridges. (laughs) Bridges. (laughs) Literal, figurative. um, Between those who are so different from us and that that is a piece of vulnerability and empathy that is trickier and uglier and uh, not as readily available in terms of our um, our emotional spectrum all the time and being able to say, all right, it's not just the celebration of great works of art by people who are different from us, but it's also going to that person on the street who sees things differently and who you may not have any commonality with, but we are living in this shared human experience. So let's have that as our basis and see where it goes. Uh, amazing. For, for me, I, I think about like power um, mm-hmm. when we're talking about power of individuals and what kind of choices they have power when we're talking about like these pieces of literature that go into um you know these big conversations of how power plays out on a global level or on a national level or like you know over generations and then you know the power of the you know print to to tell that story um and mm-hmm. just like this last thing for me is black panther um, I got into comics again when I heard Tennessee Coates was writing one. It just was like blew my mind that this scholar on like race and politics was writing comics because I just assumed like comic people write comics, um, and I don't know who comic people are, um, but I found out that they're people. You know, and I became a comic person through this. But this is a um, issue where um, Black Panther T'Challa is reunited with Storm and they have this whole background and really amazing um, connection but there's there's this uh, war happening and Storm's abilities and just power and just are on full display to the point that she starts to be seen as like a deity um, and so then it closes here saying this power that I glimpsed today the power of faith and divinity what of those who gleefully embrace that divinity or who lust after it? What of those who are not wary of power but are consumed by it? Hmm. You know, and, and again, it's just like this, that's such a big question mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, power, you know, ultimate power corrupts ultimately, mm-hmm. people say, and this kind of thing. And we look at being wary of it and we're talking about um, this conversation in our own power and managing it. Um, and our own privilege in managing that and um, having empathy rather than um, division. But the way that uh, this comic book could raise this question of like, you know, what of, what of those who are not wary of this power, but actually like mm-hmm. seek it out? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Wait, last, last takeaway. Yes. Everyone get your Toronto Library 
Clark. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or, or your Brampton. Or your yeah, whatever. Yeah, so. Just get your library card. Just get your GTA library card. Yeah. <laughs> wherever, wherever you are, get it. Um, thank you very thank much you for being a part of Stay Reading. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Ooh, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Stay Reading. And if you want to find any of the titles we discussed today or learn more about our guests, you can always check at double underscore stay reading on Instagram. And wherever you listen, don't forget to rate, comment, subscribe, and share.